To avoid the death penalty, 39-year-old Staff Sergeant Robert Bales was prepared to admit under oath that he alone carried out the worst massacre of civilians in the 12 years of the Afghanistan war. 16 dead, mostly women and children, seven others gravely wounded. In a steady voice devoid of emotion, he admitted his guilt for each separate act, saying there was no legal justification for any of it. I did form the intent, he said, to kill anyone in that compound. As to the question of why Bales did what he admits he did in two murderous nighttime forays last March 11th, he told the judge, I've asked that question a million times, and there's no reason in the world to explain why I did the horrible things I did. Despite his admissions in the two Afghan villages where Bales went on his rampage, there's outrage by relatives of the victims at the prospect of a plea deal. Said the brother of one of the victims, he has done this crime here, he should hang here. Prosecutors will push for life in prison for Bales with no possibility of parole. And while Bales will argue for a chance at parole after only 10 years as allowed by the Code of Military Justice, even his lawyer says that's highly unlikely. Mike Taibbi, NBC News, at Joint Base Lewis McCord in Washington. All right, Sandy Rios with you on Sandy Rios 24-7. Well, sometimes our n- things are not as they seem to be, and that's what today's show is about. We have soldiers languishing in Leavenworth, life sentences, uh, for things they did in combat or did not do, as the case may be, and we're going to focus on that today and give you an opportunity to, to do something about it. I have the stories of two combat veterans that Robert Bales, you just heard his story, as according to NBC News, according to NBC News, what actually happened, and the story of another young soldier, Calvin Gibbs. Uh, and we're going to talk about where they are and uh, just get, bring you information you might not hear on NBC News or CBS News. All right, so uh, I want to tell you this also. This story developed very interestingly. When I was at the uh, AFA retreat in Alabama uh, a few in the spring, uh, a woman came to me and handed me this big package, very graciously introduced herself, uh, and told me that she was hoping that I would actually, she said, I drove all the way from Louisiana. I'd been praying about this, and I was just hoping that you would do something, that you would take this on, uh, and that you would at least cover it on your program, and because it would mean so much to us. And so I took the packet, and um, I, when I recently opened it up and looked at it, I was blown away. That's why we're doing this show. Um, the, the, the woman who approached me is Suzanne White. She is part of the Louisiana Republican State Central Committee, uh, and she has been trying and trying on her own, at, on her own dime and at her own just will, uh, to try to help these particularly these two soldiers. And so we're going to do our best to to pitch in today and try to help you to be aware of what's going on. Well, speaking of life, you know, we're talking about life and death here. We're talking about uh, killings in combat. And uh, you know that I'm pro-life, but I want to clarify. I I do not agree uh, with people who would say that you never take human life. Uh, I I think combat is the exception. I think God is pretty clear about uh, there are times when uh, people have to uh, be stopped. If, they're, if they are doing horrible things, they have to be stopped. There's no other way to stop them. Uh, we're talking about, though, the li- taking the life of an innocent person is quite different. And that's where abortion comes in, because who could be more innocent than a baby and a womb? 
And of course, we are partnering with Preborn to save those innocent little babies in the womb. By the way, Preborn has rescued over 28,000 babies this year alone. Right now, hundreds of thousands of mothers are awaiting the birth of their precious babies, and thousands upon thousands of babies are taking their first breath. Uh, You know, I always think about, it always amazes me that God, uh, every birth is unique. Every birth. How many people have been born on this earth? And every birth, every child unique. That just stuns me. Your impact, uh, the the gifts that you've given to to pre-born has reached eternity. Why? Because babies need our help. You know, the overturning of Roe only made them more ravenous for the blood of the innocent. So now we need to be more ravenous to save them. Thanks to Preborn, you can do just that. It's just $28, uh, and you can introduce through ultrasound a baby to his mother or a mother to her baby for the first time. And so that's how it happens, and most of those women then choose life. If you would like to make a donation, you can do that at preborn.com slash Sandy, that's preborn.com slash Sandy. Uh, you know you can listen to the show on any po- podcast platform. Uh, you can go to sandyrios.com and just punch a button, and there it is. You can listen like that. That's very simple. You can write us at sandy at afr.net, sandy at afr.net, and you can call us and leave your comments, ask a question, whatever it is your heart desires, at 662 662- Eight two one two zero four zero. All right, it's time to get out your pen and paper, uh, and um, this is a serious podcast, and we need you to seriously pray how you might help. And so here we go. This version of Sandy Rios twenty four seven from American Family Radio. Sandy Rios. We are not called to be nice. We are often called to be confrontational. And here with me in D.C. is Fox News contributor Sandy Rios. I think the most important thing we need to demonstrate to our children is genuineness. That we actually believe what we say we believe. A longtime Fox News contributor Sandy Rios, thanks very much for being with us. Seek justice. Not social justice, but God's justice. What's right and what's wrong. Sandy Rios is with the American Family Association. A pro-life radio talk show host. We've got to say this is the line. Life is sacred. Director of Governmental Affairs for the American Family Association. Step up. Speak up. Say something. Do something. MPs are wary on patrol in dangerous Kandahar province where they regularly encounter enemy attacks. Seven days ago, we traveled north of this location. Our, our fifth vehicle struck an IED. At that time, they hit us with uh, RPGs followed by, um, by mortar rounds and small arms fire. Hey, I want that cougar up here! This time in Argandab district, they find only farmers, but the MPs see clear signs of ongoing insurgent activity. Still fresh. This is a mortar launch site. These are gun positions. Got two on a rooftop, though. But the MPs can't make a move because of strict new rules of engagement designed to reduce civilian casualties, requiring troops to stand down unless engaging in attack. Troops call their situation handcuffed, unable to root out an enemy unless under direct fire. Yet these MPs were determined. You're determined to keep coming back until you secure the whole area? Yes, we will will continue to come back in here until this area is secure. Um, 
we cannot allow them to continue to move freely within this area. Just last Friday, they patrolled here again. This time, another massive attack. An IED, rocket-propelled grenades, and small arms fire. Nine men wounded in action. And Sergeant Rosinski, seen here on patrol with us, was killed. Sergeant Ski, as they called him, was just 28, a third-generation soldier having come to Iraq and now Afghanistan in the hopes of ending this war. He leaves a wife and infant son. All right, Sandy Rios with you on Sandy Rios 24-7. What we're going to talk about today is so very serious. Uh, I We talk about important things all the time, but this really is life and death. Uh, there are soldiers, American soldiers, languishing in Leavenworth with life sentences because of what happened on the fields of combat in the war on terror. And we're going to explain to you how that can be. Uh, we're going to tell a few of their stories, and we're going to tell you how you can help them. It is, um, it's gut-wrenching to hear these stories, so get out your Kleenex, but also get out your pen and paper and be prepared to take some action. I wanted, uh, we'll tell the story with the help of uh, Lieutenant Colonel David Bull Griffin. He goes by the, word, the name Bull, which <laughs> I need to call him, you know, Colonel Griffin or something, but Lieutenant Colonel Griffin. Griffin? Is it Griffin? Griffin. Griffin. All right. Well, Bull, um, I want to give your biography here a little bit because it's uh, pretty rich and thick. Uh, you have to know that I have tremendous respect for people who've served like you have. Uh, 25 years of service, retired as a lieutenant colonel after leading Marines operationally and in combat around the world, from a rifle platoon in the jungles of Panama to a mortar platoon across the deserts of Saudi Arabia and Kuwait, to a rifle security company on the fence line in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, to a team of future operations planners in the mountains of Afghanistan, to a special operations task force during the initial assault into the cities of Iraq, and as a congressional liaison on Capitol Hill for both the Supreme Allied Commander, Europe, and the Marine Special Operations Command. There's a lot more we could say about Bull, but um, it gives, certainly gives you an idea that he was on the ground and in the field. Some of you remember the War on Terror. Others of you, amazingly, don't even really remember any of this. And so, because there are people languishing who remember it well, uh, we have to do something to make a correction. So, a bull, thank you so much for joining me this morning. I really do appreciate it. Sandy, so, it's such an honor and a blessing to be on here today. Thank you so much for making the time. I also should say that you are the CEO of, CEO of United American Patriots, and that's your connection to these stories, and we'll talk more about that later. But I want to start, you know, I, um, I know a little bit about war. My husband is really a war buff, but both of our fathers served in World War II, uh, and we we watch war movies, and uh, that doesn't make us experts. You know, we have some knowledge, though. So every war has its challenges. I was thinking about World War One. The introduction of poisonous gas was a huge obstacle. It was terrible for all the all the people fighting uh, overseas in Europe on that. In World War Two, I think the challenge was it's the, a very smart enemy, the Nazis and the Japanese too the ruthlessness of the Japanese, new technology. Those were uh, new bombs. All kinds of things were introduced in World War II. So that made that were some of the challenges. And in Vietnam, of course, it was a guerrilla war where you never were sure who your enemy was. I want to know from you, what was, uh, what were the unique challenges 
of the war on terror as you saw it uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq? What were the unique challenges? You know, there's tremendous challenges put upon our warriors across the board. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> and the biggest challenge is that we continuously, you know, within our society, believe that we're evolving, we're becoming more enlightened, or some might say woke. And so we, we try to make our warriors more empathetic and try to make them more understanding. And as we do that, we don't realize that the enemy is not doing the same. The uh, enemy is just as ruthless, if not more so, than any military we've seen ever before. And so as we continue to see our warriors get their hands tied, they, the enemy acts with impunity. And what's worse is, as we've seen thousands of Taliban released, uh, including 150 who were on death row, our warriors are still being incarcerated, and the war has ended, and we can you know, discuss how horribly it was ended, but, or that it was even fought for 20 years. Uh, remember, World War II, as you discussed, um, ended in less than four years. And as you right. said, this was against global adversaries uh, uh, that had tremendous warfighting capabilities, and these ragtag terrorists, literally, we dragged on for 20 years. There was no reason for that. It was just we were handcuffed in the warrior's ability to prosecute the war effectively. Well, in regard to that, I, I have to say I remember well uh, when things changed. And when you talked about wokeness, I, I will never forget Petraeus having these foolish notions about how when first of all, I'm sure you would agree. I, we can say this on this mic, uh, Bull, uh, that uh, Islam re- wove into it some very special challenges because uh, they have a. Even the Germans had the same worldview as most Americans. They believed in you know the same God, and they in some in some ways had some morality in spite of you know the soldiers did, even if the Nazis didn't. Um, so, but when you were dealing with the Taliban and you're dealing with uh, Islam, it's a very different culture. I mean, I remember the stories of, of these little boys crying out in the middle of the night because the Afghans would bring the Muslim. Well, how can I say this? Your the enemy would bring young boys into their into the camp, the American camps, and rape them at night. And the American soldiers were not allowed to stop that. It was very disturbing to them. And under Petraeus, it's no, 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 we have to honor their cultural habits, which is the habit of uh, older men taking young men as sexual partners. It was so disgusting. Uh, But Petraeus, I think, uh, as I recall, maybe you would disagree, was the the one that sort of led the charge in changing the rules of engagement. Uh, is 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 that accurate from your viewpoint? You would know. Yeah, well, certainly, you know, this is, we appease cultures to a flaw. And uh, we, we even see this within our own country, that we've become so tolerant and accepting that there, people used to come to America to be American. Now people come to America to uh, project their own cultures onto America. And in some regards, you know, certainly we've added value from that. But there's a distinction that I think is important. I most warriors that have fought, fought and defended Muslims, good people, against the Islamists, bad people. 
and I think that's an important differentiation, is that most Muslims, at least that we encountered, were very respectful and did not believe in jihad and did not believe in world domination and hated the Islamists who were, you know, following the letter of the Quran and the Hadith, trying to to project jihad and to have world domination. And it they, they would harm and still do to this day more Muslims than any Christians or Jews ever. And it's, it's a very upsetting situation so that when the politicians do not understand that differentiation, then it's like, oh, you know, we just have to be, you know, sensitive and tolerant and empathetic of all. And that's, that's not correct. And this is where we've seen, you know, a shift uh, in the conflict. And again, General Petraeus, he's acting upon the the orders of the commander in chief, and mainly the the shift came under the Obama administration, where we went from prosecuting aggressively and offensively to a more restricted uh, and almost like an apologetic uh, perspective. And we saw a differentiation when all of a sudden President Trump came in and he said, no, destroy the Islamists, get rid of ISIS, and went after them viciously, uh, whereas under President Obama, we were tolerating people's heads being cut off. And that, you know, this is where there's a certain point like that might be your culture. Uh, It's not acceptable and we won't accept it. And we have to draw the line or otherwise we'll appease to the point of destroying our own nation. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, let's get is, uh, you know, you're talking to civilians. Well, there are a lot of military that listen, but uh, in a way that's understandable. Can you please explain what rules of engagement came into place. Uh, and rules of engagement are how, uh, I, I don't know if it's specific to our military. Would it be something that, oh, uh, there'd be some treaty where all Western armies would agree to these rules of engagement? Or was it just our military that was placed under these new rules of engagement under Barack Obama? Was it just our military? Well, we tend to be the lead. And so, Whatever rules we engage with get put into place, they tend to follow down throughout any coalition force. So for the most part, all coalition force members, all those various different nations that were fighting alongside us would fall under the similar rules of engagement. There were some countries that I think were a little bit more lenient and gave the benefit of the doubt to the warrior. And this is important, providing that... um, presumption of innocence to the warrior. And we've seen many times, you know, and I've talked to civilians, and they try to relate to police officers and say, well, you know, we we have to control our police officers. They can't be using violence. And the problem, the big distinction there is that police officers, for the most part, when they're going after individuals, the the criminals want to get away. They don't necessarily, for the vast majority of cases, do not want to engage the police. They're trying to avoid confrontation. It's very different from our warriors on the battlefield, where the enemy is trying to kill them. They know, the enemy knows the more blood they shed, the better chances they can have of um, American politicians being able to use that to say, oh, let's, let's in this war and why are we even fighting and there's all these other issues so i i can't speak specifically to the rules of engagement because for the most part they're classified but in general there was an aggressive posture of being able to prosecute conflicts aggressively and go after uh, known or assumed enemy combatants to where then all of a sudden that decision making 
ability on the lowest levels at the tactical levels had to go all the way up sometimes to a general officer to approve an airstrike, a drone strike, whatever it was. And by the time it was approved, if it was approved, the the target of opportunity was lost. There no longer was the ability to strike. And this is where if you in combat, speed is important, and being able to act at volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous environments, you can't wait to go all the way up and have political decisions being made down at the tactical level. So the bottom line is, though, for you guys in combat, then you have you are you're hamstrung. You can't really fight, uh, and you're hamstrung. I remember something about uh, if you if you had to be shot at before you could shoot back, something to that effect. It was ridiculous. On a war footing, yes. ridiculous, and so, and then, of course, as you exactly. said, this this war went on forever. So this is under Barack Obama, Leon Panetta, Petraeus. They're all vil- vic- villains to me. I'm just telling you. Uh, so, well, uh, Bull, if, if, if I can, Sandy, I'll give you one specific example. There's a, a warrior in prison right now, and uh, he was accused of murder and convicted of murder and placed in prison. What was so disturbing is that before. There was ever an investigation. It was purely accusations made by the enemy, the Taliban, that President Obama came out and said, we will prosecute this case aggressively. Hold on a second, Mr. President. (laughs) Don't you mean we will investigate? And he was very clear, we will prosecute. So there was already the presumption of guilt based upon the enemy's accusations. And Leon Panetta came out and said, the death penalty is on the table. Well, hold on a second. Death penalty is on the table for what? We haven't done an investigation. There are, have been no uh, charges placed against this soldier. So we were already talking about hanging a staff sergeant in the United States Army before there was ever an investigation. And there never was an investigation. When, when the a- Afghan National Army, our allies, went to investigate, they were shot at by the people in the village, and one of them was actually killed. By the time the United States government actually got in to do an investigation, all of the bodies had already been buried. And so when U.S. government said, well, we'd like to exhume the bodies and do forensics, oh, no, we can't do that. That would offend our culture. And like, okay, can you just tell us who was dead? Yes, all women, children, old people. And it's like, okay. And so we had a list of names, and we were being told that this was who was killed, but it gets worse, that we actually, the United States government flew in known Taliban bomb makers and terrorists into the United States, then put them on Delta Airlines alongside U.S. citizens and had them testify against this warrior, and then didn't fly them straight back, actually took them to SeaWorld first to celebrate, and then flew them back. It, it's it's obscene. It's disgusting. We actually have the receipts of them going to SeaWorld. It, it's it's terrible, the, the lack of the presumption of innocence, or even the rights. All of the rights that we as U.S. citizens are afforded are not given to our U.S. military personnel. A, a school shooter here in America would have more rights and be treated more fairly than a U.S. military person who has been accused of crimes by the enemy. You know, I have, uh, I know you're talking about Robert Bales. I have a picture here in front of me of him and his wife. He has two young children. At least they were young at the time he was sentenced. He's a decorated infantry soldier with four combat tours, traumatic brain injury, and post-traumatic stress. Um, He was exposed to 10 IED attacks. There's a lot of things to say about his service. 
Uh, and they accuse him now of killing 16 civilians, including women and children. And, you know, this was, honestly, I think, Bull, in an, in an, under normal circumstances, people would think that you're exaggerating, you're crazy, because I know you're not. Uh, because we, uh, I followed, uh, of course, I followed that war very carefully. I went to Washington to serve as president of a public policy uh, organization one month after the 9-11 attack. So I was there during all of these early years and then when Obama took over, watch those rules of engagement change and how then, then the military under Barack Obama went after our men and accusing soldiers who are to kill, that's what they do in combat, of murder and sentencing them to trials, as you are describing, and bringing the um, the Taliban out to uh, testify against them. And I'm sure there were other instances of that as well. Um, uh, how many, um, I know we're just going to talk about two, but how many do you, are still incarcerated in Leavenworth, as far as you know, uh, serving out terms because of their uh, behavior in c- combat? That's a good question. I don't have the exact count of how many soldiers are actually in Leavenworth. We're, we're supporting two specifically right now, uh, but there there are probably about a dozen or more, uh, and not just in Leavenworth, but in other uh, military facilities around the nation, but uh, there, there are two that specifically where their rights were egregiously offended uh, that we have stepped in. And that's where, you know, people can argue back and forth about, well, you know, maybe he should, maybe he should not have acted this way, which, you know, that's fine. But at the end of the day, we still must preserve every individual's rights. And the fact that this was just such a quick uh, it, it was. It was. He was prosecuted in the media. The media jumped on here. He was made out to be a horrible person. I met Bob Bales, and uh, I'll tell you, he's a very intelligent person, and he's a, a, a well-spoken person. And when I came in, and I asked him because I'm not an attorney, I'm a Marine who's had combat tours. I, I asked him point blank. I'm like, Bob, you killed 16. What the hell? And he goes, No, sir, I killed 20. <laughs> I was like, Well, that's that. That I didn't expect. Uh, and he then said, I went out of town to destroy Taliban leaders at known safe houses because we were no longer allowed to engage. We were told we had to stay back, and he got frustrated. He watched one of his friends get his legs blown up, and he's like, enough's enough. And he's like, I'm going to take this upon myself to take action. And, you know, it, it, you could say on, on the one hand, like, all right, well, that's crazy, uh, which I would agree with. But on the other hand, you say, well, that was pretty heroic. That, you know, taking initiative to engage the enemy on your own. And here's where people say, well, didn't he kill any civilians? And he'll admit that he has. And he's, he feels terrible about that. The difference is the way we treat individuals. We have drones that go out and kill wedding parties, 60 people to kill one Taliban leader. Yet no one is held accountable for murder. And so Bob, who's going out to kill some Taliban leaders and did, according to him, we don't know because we never were able to examine the bodies, that he did kill civilians, which he feels horrible about, that he's being held accountable for murder. What about the individuals when we did the Afghan pullout that did a drone strike that killed children? There was absolutely no enemy combatants there whatsoever, yet not one individual has ever been held accountable for that. And Bob Bales is sitting in prison for what we could call collateral damage. That's what happens in combat, that when you conduct a combat operation and you kill enemy combatants, and unfortunately, 
innocent civilians are harmed, that it's referred to as collateral damage. But in well, Bob's the, uh, case, it was so political, it was murder. We also have to remember, uh, well, that the, the, the Islamist fighters uh, were known for uh, bringing women and children into places where they were hiding weapons or facilities where they were fighting from. They did not mind putting their women and children in harm's way. They used their women and children. I That's remember, true. remember, uh, 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 yeah, the mastermind of 9-11. That's remember? exactly right. He put his wife, you it, know, in front exactly of him right. in the bullet. Yeah, so they don't have the same, it's not the same. It's just a very different set of values. And so you probably could not, I guess, go to a center uh, where they were, well, I would be likely that if you go to a center where they're fighting or some uh, hut or whatever they've set up, that there are going to be women and children there. So anyway, so Robert Bales, exactly right. Yeah, Robert Bales wrote. He said um, he wrote to me and he said, uh, "In the end, I come back to my original point. I've been in prison more than ten years, and I have ten more years before the U.S. Army will even consider clemency." I've earned a bachelor's degree from Ohio University. I am a couple of classes away from my master's degree. Um, I've he's studied a lot of things. He goes through it. I've been baptized. I've taken Bible study and completed the Truth Project. In contrast, the Taliban, while confined, became more militant, so that once they were given a second chance by the U.S. government, they could go back into the same environment they had committed atrocities previously and continue to murder, rape, and oppress their own countrymen and women. So I want to again point out, if I had not fought for the United States of America and had been a Taliban terrorist, I would be home right now. Um, it's, uh, and then he said, Unfortunately, that, that's accurate. It's, we, we've had over 5,000 Taliban released, 150 of whom were on death row for the most atrocious crimes you could possibly imagine. They're all home right now. Can, we could presume conducting the same atrocious actions upon the citizens of Afghanistan. Exactly. So, all right. Well, we have another uh, soldier's story to tell. And actually, I think I'd like to do it by using uh, a CBS report. Now, it won't be a shock to anyone that the media has not been the friend of the soldiers. Isn't that interesting? Why would they do that? Well, we see a pattern, don't we? Uh, They were all about the narrative that the Obama administration was putting forward. And this is the narrative they gave in the the case of our next soldier, Calvin uh, Gibbs. This is clip two. Staff Sergeant Calvin Gibbs on patrol in Afghanistan three days after he allegedly orchestrated the murder of an Afghan civilian. If the charges are true, he used those medical shears tucked into the top of his flak jacket to cut off fingers as trophies. He's crazy. Gibbs is, there's something wrong with that guy. And he's, I've seen him kill, you know, like I know he's killed dudes. And, uh, Specialist Jeremy Morlock, who was accused of taking part in three murders earlier this year, made that statement to Army investigators as he described Gibbs's actions. Pulled out one of his grenades, American grenade, you know, popped it, throws the grenade, and then, you know, tells me Winfield, all right, dude, you know, wax this guy, you know, kill this guy, kill this guy. Winfield is specialist Adam Winfield, who admitted to being a member of Gibbs's kill team. That's what he called him, kill team. And what did he mean by that? He meant that he was going to kill people. Winfield, too, is charged with murder. It's pretty much the worst thing I've ever done in my life. Looking back, was there any way that that shooting could have been justified at all? No. Winfield claimed he was too afraid of Gibbs to blow the whistle. Uh, what, what do you think he would do? I think he would kill me. And, and why do you think that? 
Another soldier, Emmett Quintal, told investigators what happened when a private named Stoner blew the whistle on drug use in the squad. Gibbs sat down casually and told Stoner that if he snitched again, he would kill him and that he has killed people before and he has no problems killing again. At that time, Staff Sergeant Gibbs had a cloth. He opened it and dropped it and three human body fingers fell on the ground. Well, Gibbs's attorney says that these were all legitimate combat operations and that those statements by those soldiers are, go are gonna, not going to stand up under cross-examination. All right, CBS, that's their version of the story of Calvin Gibbs. Uh, there's a lot more to this story, and our guest, David Bull Gervine, uh, is here to tell us about it. Remember that Bull is the CEO of United American Patriots, and they've taken on both Calvin and Robert uh, to try to help them because they feel like they're, they've really, uh, the, the facts are not what are, are being stated. Now, this one's more complicated, Bull. Can you help us understand? Uh, they are saying he led a kill team. Uh, they're saying all kinds of uh, really horrific things about Calvin. What do we know? What do we know? So that this is, uh, as you said, it, it is a more complicated case because it gets into very emotional aspects. And what we do know is the three individuals who actually testified and blamed it all on Staff Sergeant Gibbs uh, were not actually even in Staff Sergeant Gibbs' unit. And even the judge, like, First of all, there was no forensic evidence to support the allegations, only the testimony from these junior soldiers, and they, they made this testimony for plea deals to get reduced sentences, and the, the judge referred to them, and he said there was no evidence other than drug users, liars, and murderers who had both a motive to fabricate and the opportunity to collude. And what that means is the criminal investigators, they, they didn't want to get some junior soldiers, so they figured, well, let, let's get a more senior guy. And so they allowed these individuals to drive around a government vehicle on a base in Afghanistan after they had been accused of these crimes and basically said, make sure you get your story straight. And they drove around smoking hashish and then came back and said, yeah, you know what? I think that it was, uh, yeah, it was Calvin Gibbs that told us to do that. And so what, what happened was it went from these allegations uh, from these individuals who they actually admitted to committing this murder, these murders. Calvin was not even present for two of these situations. The third situation that they tried tacking on actually was a justified engagement where one of the witnesses, a, a soldier named Wagnon, he said that, you know, it wasn't murder. He actually was there, and he watched the enemy combatant come towards him. This He opened fire first, and then Gibbs opened fire. And he, this individual, Wagnon, was not allowed to testify. So they didn't even have this witness to testify on the third allegation. So at the end of the day, Gibbs was held accountable for these murders. And what the the sticking point, if you will, is that, unfortunately, Calvin had seen a lot of combat, and had a lot of PTSD and was dealing with a lot of challenges. And he did, unfortunately, dismember enemy combatants after they were dead. And he took what's called war trophies. This is horrific. He recognizes that. He acknowledged it. He admitted to it. He was found guilty of that. And because 
of that, then the presumption was made, well, if you're willing to do that, then certainly you're a murderer. And that's not, that's a huge leap right there. There has to be some evidence. You can't just assume because someone did something bad that you are a bad person. And so the the challenge here is that it is such a, an emotionally, you know, hot topic, like, wow, that's that's pretty bad, that the jury ended up finding him guilty and where where i where we continue to fight for clemency we have hearings the the perspective is this let's you know gibbs has admitted to the things he did wrong he has not there was no evidence for murder then let's hold him accountable for that which he did wrong he's he's spent a dozen years in prison right now do you know the longest amount of time that any u.s service member has ever spent in prison for taking a war trophy it is zero, zero years, not one day. And we, we've put them out with bad conduct discharges. We've reduced them in rank and all the rest. We have never placed them in prison. So this is where the evidence supports him being held accountable for certain things, but certainly not for murder. But people don't want to hear that because they're so upset by the, the war crime action of taking a war trophy. Well, you know, I think... You you know better than I do that it's very hard. There's so few people serving in the military now. It's very hard for people to understand they they place their own regular life values and understanding on soldiers who are called upon to do the most horrendous things that you know things that already breach their conscience. They have to kill, you know things that are cause them to they alter their mind has to alter or they could not survive in that culture. So I'm not excusing uh, the taking of war medals. I'm just saying it's a, it's war. It's war. It's messy. It's horrible. People yeah, die. You, know, you 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 bring up a really good point. And if I can't elaborate a little bit more on that, when Staff Sergeant Gibbs was a junior soldier on his first combat deployment, he was standing in a security position in the evening when a vehicle went speeding towards the checkpoint and wouldn't stop. And he opened fire and he killed the combatants or the people in the vehicle. Unfortunately, they were all civilians. And what was happening is the enemy would force civilians to drive towards these checkpoints to test the metal of the military. And the civilians would say, well, if we do that, they're going to shoot at us and, and kill us. And the enemy would say, maybe, but if you don't, we will kill you. So they would do this. And so Calvin, at a very young age, ended up killing civilians in a justifiable situation. But if that had happened in the civilian world, let's say it was a police officer in a similar situation, he would take time off, he'd get some psychological debriefing, they would work with him. Calvin Gibbs, the very next morning, went on a combat patrol. And by his own admission, he's like, it still haunts me to this day. And a part of the reason, he says, after that, I either had to realize I was evil or the enemy was evil for doing this and making me take this action. And so the only coping mechanism he had as a young kid with absolutely no psychological support or time off or time away from the battlefield, just continuous combat operations, was the enemy is evil. And so after he would be in other engagements where he'd see troops getting shot, killed, injured, and all the rest, he would take a war trophy to say, I beat you. And it was a psychological coping mechanism for him. Again, I don't justify this, but I can understand it. And again, 
hold him accountable for the crimes he's committed, not for those he did not. And, and it's also important to understand that those individuals who testified that they, they committed the murder, they acknowledged, we, we threw hand grenades at civilians and then took photographs with them. It was horrible what they did. It was cold-blooded murder that they got 24 years, seven years, and three years. Calvin Gibbs is in prison for life. Absolute miscarriage of justice. Yeah. Well, Calvin has a young son. He was two when he was convicted, um, and he's about, I think, 35 years old. He's from Montana, combat infantryman, non-commissioned officer with eight years of honorable service and multiple combat tours, medals of achievement and valor. He spent 547 days in pre-trial confinement, and he's now serving this life sentence at Leavenworth. And of course, he's asking for us. He was was treated as an enemy prisoner of war. He was absolutely physically and emotionally abused even before he stood trial for nearly two years. Uh, It it really, again, we would never treat any U.S. citizen this way except our military people. Somehow we're allowed to do that to them. And these are the individuals who voluntarily go in harm's way to defend our rights, yet they don't get the same rights. It, well, you know, it's, it's, it's really sad. I think people might understand it if I were to say, might understand it better if I were to say, we're seeing how our policemen are now unprotected, uh, uh, put yes. out there, accused of, you know, crimes when they try to, to uh, en- engage or try to, to enforce the law, is what I'm trying to say. So the, the world has turned yes. upside down, and people can certainly understand uh, the military has its own court for a reason because combat is different. It just is. It's different. And so, but now they're being tried, you know, as though they're regular people walking on the streets like you. Well, although I can't say we have justice here now, but we used to. Uh, so, and I, it also reminds me too, Bull, of uh, when we were uh, uh, going after terrorists and bringing them to Guantanamo. And then this brilliant idea was that we should try them in our American courts as though they were regular right. criminals. It's just so twisted. But let's get to We've talked it a is. long time now without actually uh, talking about what we can do. And it is important. I mean, it, um, let me just say that uh, I, I, I will speak about this. Uh, this came to my attention uh, through the real hard work of Suzanne White, who is a, a Louisiana Republican state central. She's on that committee. And she has taken on the crusade for Calvin uh, and for Robert, uh, along with Hugh, to, to get these guys to help them. And she went way out of her way to deliver me handwritten letters from these guys to me and all of their information. And I really, uh, certainly, I appreciate that. And I feel the burden of it. I do. So now the question is, what can people do? What What do you think they can do? What would you suggest if they want to help? Well, great question. And first, I, I do want to acknowledge Suzanne White is an incredible force of nature this this person like i i wish he was the president of the united states had so much energy and and uh, uh, just uh, the proper focus that she has to do the right thing at the right time and and, and doesn't get paid for this it's incredible she's an a, amazing person and she pushed through uh many different uh legislative pieces but the big one that's she's focused on right now is the Warfighter Protection and Amnesty Resolution. And 
the the challenge here is that the International Criminal Court, uh, which flagrantly is anti-American, and they're looking for ways to come after our quote-unquote war criminals, uh, even... You know, we saw Secretary of Defense Austin and supported by General Milley say, yes, we're going to go back and look over the past 20 years to find war crimes. Well, where are you going to find them? You're going to ask the enemy. And that's the challenge is that now we're opening them up to being prosecuted by now a foreign court. I mean, it's oh, bad boy. enough in our own military courts, but this is where, um, you know, President Biden in 2021 revoked the actions of President Trump and opening the door uh, to these politicized ICC prosecutions of American service personnel. So she pushed this through the Republican Party of Louisiana. It's they're hoping to make it legislation uh, to make sure that it will then eventually become a part of the uh, National Republican Party's platform for 2024 to basically give blanket amnesty for all who have served in the war on terror in Afghanistan, Syria, and Iraq from September 11th until today. And it's you know it, people say, well, you know you can't do that. It's like, but it's happened before. It, you go all the way back to President Lincoln, who said, let's mend the nation and gave tremendous amounts of amnesty to the the Confederate soldiers. You look at the draft dodgers in Vietnam who went to Canada, they were, after the war, there was amnesty and they were brought back. So there, there, there is precedent to do this, and it makes sense, especially since we've already released the enemy combatants. Let's give amnesty to our warriors to ensure that those who have already been, uh, I would say, unjustly uh, convicted of war crimes, to give them the chance to reunite with our nation, and also to ensure we don't have other warriors who are now brought up on on crimes that may or may not have ever happened. And it's in the enemy's interest to make false crimes and bring in false witnesses and to try to hang our U.S. servicemen. So it's a, it's a tremendous piece. And so to your question, what can you do? The answer is contact your congressman. Make sure they realize what's happening, what can be done. Uh, certainly, we always appreciate at UAP.org any donations that we can continue to move forward with all of the warriors we support. And make sure that the word gets out. Share this information, because most people, they don't know. And moreover, the, the war is quickly in the rearview mirror. And it's like, well, that was then. And it's like, well, does it, you know, what difference does it make now? Well, as you pointed out in the beginning of the show, for those who are still holding on to PTSD, traumatic brain injuries, lost limbs, for those who are still incarcerated, this war is not over. And that's why we have to continue to fight for them. Well, we, our motto has always been, leave no man behind. These guys have been left behind, right. and they're languishing in this prison. It's, it's, I am disgusted. I am disgusted by Lloyd Austin and General Milley. I'm disgusted. I'm disgusted. Uh, these men uh, don't understand anything except their own ambitions, and maybe even worse, uh, they are not. They are not faithful patriots. Uh, I think we all know that we are in trouble in this country. Nevertheless, uh, there are things we can do, and so Bull is just kind of laying it out. On if we if they go to UAP, that's United American Patriots, which is your organization. Will these stories be there for them? Can they read and share them? Absolutely. Our, our team has done a tremendous job of posting 
all sorts of information about various different cases that we've taken on. We've gotten pardons from the President of the United States, multiple pardons. Uh, we had several others lined up. We had hoped to have several uh, other warriors, including Bob and Calvin, receive a pardon from President Trump. Uh, it was our understanding. It was signed, done, ready to go. I actually even flew out to Leavenworth on the last day of the president's uh, term on January 20th, expecting to have Cal and Bob come out. I was going to buy them a steak dinner. And unfortunately, January 6th just turned everything upside oh. down, and the White House went into defense mode, and those pardons never were released. Wow. So. We're going to continue to fight for those warriors. You can find all this information at UAP.org, and uh, certainly we're open to any questions, input, support, uh, prayers, donations. Uh, we, we just had uh, a, a drill instructor was charged of negligent homicide of a soldier who had a, or a Marine who had a pre-existing heart condition. We went, fought that case, and he was exonerated. Uh, so we, we, we've taken on a lot of different cases, and we'll continue to fight for our warriors. Okay. So let me repeat. It's UAP, United American Patriots.org. I'll go there. You can Now this will give you stuff to share. So you can share it on social media. You can also have it to print out and bring to your congressman. Uh, it's always best to take it to their home offices, I think. Make it really personal with them. The other thing that Suzanne is asking so for those of you involved in Republican Party politics, and some of you are, uh, the, the initiative that she has started, which is this Warfighter Protection and Amnesty Resolution, is an initiative through the Republican Party. And they will be meeting in Milwaukee to establish the platform uh, pretty soon here because we're getting ready for a presidential election. And so uh, she's asking that you contact your state Republican Party headquarters and urge them to pass uh, this same resolution at their up- upcoming meetings. So that means I we need to post, we will post, this uh, Warfighter Protection and Amnesty Resolution. Uh, Louisiana just passed it, by the way, last weekend. So it's a done deal in Louisiana. God bless Louisiana and Suzanne for all of her efforts. We'll put that on our Sandy Reels 24-7 Facebook page. We'll also put the address uap.org just to remind you, but then hopefully you're writing it down and don't have to take that extra step. So... Uh, David Bulgerfine, we are just so grateful that you've taken up the baton of defending uh, your fellow warriors. And uh, please keep in touch, and we'll see if there's anything further that we can do to help. We we want to partner with you. So thank you for your time, sir. Any any final thoughts from you? No, I, I just God bless you. I appreciate everything you do, and God bless all your listeners who are just truly patriotic and you know, like all of us, want to see our nation moving in the right direction. And I, I'm just blessed to be able to have the ability to impact this in some small way. So thank you so much for having me on. I, I'm really honored. My pleasure. And uh, please keep in touch so we'll know what's going to happen with these guys. Because I might not know, it might not come to me accidentally. So I would love to have a follow-up with you, uh, Bull, if we could do that. God bless you, sir. Thank uh, you. All right. God this is you. Yeah, thank you. This is Sandy Rios on Sandy Rios 24-7. This is Sandy Rios 24-7 on American Family Radio. All right, Sandy Rios on Sandy Rios 24-7 back with you. That's a lot to digest, isn't it? 
Uh, I'm, I've asked Bruce to join me because, uh, as I said earlier in the show, Bruce, is, he knows a lot about war and combat, uh, and we're going to jo- have him join us in just a second for his thoughts and observations about that conversation that I just had with Bull Gerfine. Um, I want to remind you that you can call and leave a message at 662-821-2040, or you can email us at sandy at afr.net, sandy at afr.net. You can listen on any podcast platform. If you're sharing with friends who are not uh, used to listening to podcasts, tell them to go to sandyrios.com, and it's real simple to listen from there. And as for Preborn, uh, who sponsor this show, I, I would just, you know, they are the ones that provide ultrasound for moms who are confused or stressed out or worried sick about being pregnant so that they can actually see that it's a living baby inside. It's their baby, and not just a baby, their baby. If you have the means, would you consider a leadership gift to save babies in a really big way? Your tax-deductible donation of $5,000 will sponsor Preborn's entire network for 24 hours, helping to rescue 200 babies. To donate, all you have to do is go to preborn.com slash Sandy. That's preborn.com slash Sandy. All right, sweetheart, thanks for joining me. That is so much to digest, and I'm really eager to know what your thoughts are about what we just heard. Well, once again, we... When will we learn as a country, when will we learn that war is a unique situation and you cannot fight it with handcuffs on people? Uh, Our military, when it's engaged, the reason it's sent in is to win the war. It's not to make political points. It's not to assuage other governments. If they want us to get involved and we decide to get involved, then we should go all the way. We've seen this in Vietnam. We've seen this in Korea, and now we've seen it in the war on terror in Afghanistan, in Iraq. We send people there, and then we, we restrict them. And you know what happens? When you restrict uh, military people from doing their jobs, actually more people die because they have to stay there because the situation will not end. Um, we, we talked to General Patton's grandson not long ago, and that was Patton's motto was, we just keep going. Because the harder we go, the more people we save. We kill more of them, and we save more of our own. Bruce, you know, this reminds me of a show, you know, you and I both love history. So we were watching a documentary about Lincoln as he was prosecuting the Civil War. And uh, remember that there were so many losses, so many casualties. I've forgotten the battle. This is toward the end of the war. And maybe it was Gettysburg, I'm not sure. And someone said to him, Mr. Lincoln, you know, so many people are being killed, We maybe we should back off. And his response, gentle man that he was, gentle and also Christian, he said, no, we're going to push forward. We have to take do whatever we have. We have to get this war over with so that less people will die. And so that's when Sherman did his march to the, to the sea through Georgia, and uh, the war did end because of that. And that came from Lincoln, who was really a man of peace. You know, you can really see... Um, the higher-ups in the government's fingers all over these situations. Um, These people uh, have the handcuffs put on them, so they're seeing their fellow soldiers killed. They get frustrated, and they're like, you know, we can't just sit back and wait to become targets. We need to be preemptive. And so when they go to do the, what I would call the right thing, which is protect themselves, it's like they've identified people that are trying to kill them, and even though they're not under fire from these people right at this moment, 
they know they will be in the future. And, they, and our guys go in and take whatever actions they, they did to uh, uh, eradicate this situation, and then they're prosecuted. And I'll guarantee you that in these situations, the orders are coming down from higher up that you make sure these guys are prosecuted yes. and you make sure they're convicted. <laughs> That's disgusting. Because we have to assuage uh, President Karzai, the locals, yeah. uh, the Taliban even. we uh, Remember when we started uh, bringing Taliban people here to testify against our own people? That is unconscionable. You just heard him say he, they even took them to, uh, what, SeaWorld? SeaWorld. In Florida yeah. and put them on planes next to civilians when they were killing Americans? It's just, it'd be, it just uh, infuriates, infuriates. You know, it's already, it's, it's tough because... These people really have been forgotten, the soldiers and the Marines and sailors that went over to fight the war on terror. Uh, and they have gone through, mul- many of them have gone through multiple deployments. They've been in combat. You know, it's when you're over in the Middle East, you are not safe. Even when you're in your camp, you are not safe. And so there is a, a syndrome that starts to take, you know, you, you get very uh, wary being there. I was there for uh, a month and I could feel it. Um, these guys are there for m- six months at a time, a year at a time, and then they go back for multiple um, multiple deployments. And almost 16% of our combat troops that came back from Afghanistan and Iraq showed signs of PTSD. And it's from this constant threat to their lives. Yeah, so I mean, one of the things that Bull pointed out, you know, World War II was only four years long, and we've been in this war. Well, I guess you could say it's over with, it's, but it's, it went on for 20 years. 20 years! Like, for, in the case of Robert Bales, he was on his fourth deployment in November of 2011, and when this incident happened that they're accusing him of, it's just too much. It's just too much. And so if you would like to help, go to UAP.org, United AmericanPatriots.org, and you can get the information about these guys and share it. Put it on your Facebook page. Uh, you know, if you tweet, tweet. You know, whatever you do, whatever your outlet is, if it's Instagram, I don't know. But let's raise awareness about this, and God willing, God willing, if we should have a different outcome in the presidential election and someone should come in, uh, this needs to be on their desk day one, day day one, uh, to pardon these guys and get them out of Leavenworth. And so um, with that in mind, we, we thank you for listening, and um, we thank you for all that you do. You listen to this show because you are conscientious. You listen to this show because you do believe in doing something and saying something. And you, more, more than just my words, my words are from Scripture. My words are not the exact words, but it is just a matter of not being a passive observer, but taking on the problems of others, bearing the burdens of others. That's what we do as Christians. And so thank all of you. I want to thank all of you for doing just exactly that. Thank you for listening to today's edition of Sandy Rios 24-7.